You're listening to the Comms Risk Podcast. Hello, this is episode 28 of the Comms Risk Podcast, and I'm your host, Eric Priest-Kelms. As always, we'll be talking about the state of play for risk management and business assurance in the electronic communications sector. Today's interviewee is John Brooks. John is a vice president at Subex, overseeing product management at one of the global leaders in the revenue assurance and fraud management market. Based in the USA, John has been at Subex for over 10 years and he's a very well-known figure in our professional field, thanks also to the time he spent working for other vendors beforehand, often selling the concept of revenue assurance to telcos who had never heard of it. John joins us today to provide his overview of where the communications risk and assurance market is headed, looking beyond the established RAFM products and services, and talking about the newer offerings that telcos will demand more of during the next few years. I'm also joined by my regular co-host, Dan Baker. Dan is the founder of the Technology Research Institute, and he's also the editor of Black Swan. So today's guest, uh, Dan, is John Brooks of Subex, and he's had a really quite an amazing career in the sense of he's been working in this field consistently for over two decades now. He was with an American-owned company, Connexen. They were acquired by a British-owned company, Azure, a spin-off of BT, and they in turn were acquired by Subex, leading Subex to become market leaders in revenue assurance and fraud management. John still works for Subex, so he's uh, quite a survivor in this line of work, and he's very well-known and very widely experienced. You must have come across him more than once. Yeah, uh, yeah, John, he's one of the veterans in the industry. In fact, I, I knew him back when he was with Connection, and that company was kind of rising up. And uh, one very memorable time, um, you know, the Subex invited me out to Seattle, and we had in the same room, we had uh, the head of revenue assurance at Verizon, Time Warner Cable, and uh, Quest, you know, it was a pretty, uh, and plus a few others, and uh, Two Mobile was, the, was another one. And they were, you know, had a beautiful round robin that uh, John was really kind of coordinating and um, monitoring and um, uh, it was an excellent uh, exchange. And so he's got that type of star power to uh, attract, you know, top executives and, uh, you know, make them think about these problems in a bigger way. So with no more ado, let's cut to the interview. We jump in with John identifying some really big changes to the telco landscape and the implications for those working in risk and assurance. I actually made a prediction at TM Forum, well, probably close to, a, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. They were asking for predictions from a bunch of people, and my name came up, and so I gave them one. I said, guess what? Interconnect as we now know it and Roaming as we now know it are going to go away. They're going to absolutely go away. Don't know if it's going to happen in five years, but I'm sure it's going to happen. Well, I'm looking around now, and we're starting to see that happen. Um, we're starting to see a lot more of the blurring of the lines in what is considered um, you know, billable services and what is considered metered billable services compared to what is now uh, becoming more in favor of uh, all-you-can-eat services. So interconnect services now. You know, how many of us, especially here in North America, 
pay one flat fee and pay no long distance charges whatsoever anymore. Um, with our mobility plans, we can call all over the United States and now Mexico and most of the Caribbean and have no roaming costs whatsoever. You can go get your T-Mobile phone now and you can roam for, within your monthly plan, you can roam for basically free to 150 countries around the world. Um, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that's happening now and with the further progression of um, voice over IP, voice over LTE, all of the um, uh, internet-based, uh, you know, IP-based calling uh, voice services now, um, that's serving, at least in my mind, as a sunset to what we have historically referred to as uh, interconnect and or roaming um, capabilities. They're really just going away. And, and when, when, you, when you consider the fact that, and this is a conversation I have now in, in my current role is heading up all of the uh, products for Subex, I talked with my product managers. Uh, I just had this conversation in the last few months with my team saying, you know, we have to make sure that we're thinking of voice as only one of a series of products uh, that are being offered by an operator. In other words, voice had always been the dominant player, the dominant revenue maker, Maker, the, the dominant play in the industry. Um, really, it's not anymore. You know, data services, whether those data services are carrying a voice call or a text message or an email or whatever, data services are where the money is going to be at going forward. And how we're going to monetize that is going to be a nasty, nasty problem and already is a nasty problem for operators to have to figure out how to deal with it. So I, I see voices just disappearing in its not just its complexity, but it's in, in its importance. Um, you know, it's funny to watch my kids sit down and to get them actually to actually have a voice call with somebody. You'd think I'd extracted a couple of their molars out of their head <laughs> because they would much rather text, Snapchat, Instagram, anything besides voice. So what, what's that say for the voice market in general? And but every single bit of that has a revenue management component. Every bit of it. Cost side, the revenue side. To your point, Dan, you're absolutely right. But you know, cost and revenue, whether we're assuring one or the other, at some point the lines become very, very blurred and they become one and the same. And yeah, and, and just because, and just because at the retail level you don't see you seeing a flat fee under the covers, the operators and uh, you know are working together and have to reconcile it. In many cases, some are going to have keep you know bill and keep, but the profitable stuff, people are still going to be billing for. You know. You're absolutely right. You know, it is it is um, something to be said that that over a period of time, the network services that are required to carry these uh, have a revenue and a cost component to them. The services themselves have any revenue and a cost component to them. The partners that we work with as an operator will have a revenue and a cost component to it. So, for us to artificially split them into separate camps over the last you know 15, 20 years. That's fine, but after a period of time, the business matures to where that's not the story anymore. The story really needs to be, at least in my opinion, the story needs to be a combined stance of revenue and cost all the way through the life cycle of an event or of a customer or of whatever the case may be, a product, for instance, so that, so that operators have clear understandings in real time of what's happening in their business. So. Now, John, I want to break in and, and kind of deconstruct your history of how we've got to where we are today before we go too far into the future. There were people in America, they wanted to do revenue assurance. However, you've got a complicated regulatory environment that's unique to the American market, lots of 
local exchange carriers, kinds of telcos that you don't find anywhere else in the world. And as a result, maybe the attention, the focus, the areas where you could deliver quick wins, easy money, you know, uh, low-hanging fruit for your telco, they were focused more on costs and inter-carrier settlements in the United States of America and in North America in general than they were in the rest of the world. So the rest of the world focused more on the retail revenues you were earning by supplying retail services to ordinary customers, whereas telcos in the United States of America were more focused around assurance between the bills they were passing between themselves. As time matures, you find that there's this explosion in the number of mobile users, especially in Europe, because GSM was very effective in encouraging the take-up of mobile in Europe. And as a result, you had this increased sophistication, this increased demand, this increased work again on assurance of all these mobile bills that are going out, especially because you've got all the telcos there who are making a lot of mistakes because they knew and they grew rapidly and they didn't know how to do things. And therefore, then again, that explains where the shift of focus is. Over time, you have these mobiles, these big mobile companies, the biggest ever mobile companies, turning up in places like India, where they have huge numbers of subscribers in a mobile company, but perhaps very, very thin margins that they're making because they can't afford to charge too much. And then maybe I can go and extrapolate a little bit further into the future and say, as you say, where are revenues going to come from? Well, they're probably going to come in for the kinds of communications providers who are offering something to their customers because their customers don't get it any other way. And that may look like uh, the unbanked customers in Africa who use their mobile phone to get access to banking services and will increasingly use their phone to procure all sorts of other services too. Whereas maybe in North America, because of the competitive environment, there's many other ways that you could, you could acquire similar services. So it's going to be harder for communications providers to, to gain those revenues in North America. And as a result, there'll be less assurance work done. So... If you follow my argument, if I follow your career, which, as I say, was in a company headquartered in North America, then a company headquartered in Europe, and then a company headquartered in India, does that mean that in future, John, we can expect you to pop up working for a company headquartered in Africa? <laughs> <laughs> it really depends on the country. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a good, that's a good question. And to watch where... The industry evolves, and who's evolving first is certainly always something of keen interest for me to make sure that I'm, um, you know, not just plugged in and aware, but but understanding what it's going to mean for the broader market. Um, you know, watching the the advent of, of of cashless purchasing move from what has been North America a credit card based thing to now what is becoming increasingly a mobile wallet entity, and and now you're seeing the rise of the unbanked out there. Um, the, the revenue management implications, the security implications for both the operator and the consumer, uh, those, are, those are really interesting areas for me. I'm watching telecommunications evolve and, and certainly not just that North America's got a different rate of, evolve, uh, of involvement, if you will, than, than is happening in, in other geographies, but there's no one geography that I would argue is evolving the same as another one. So as, as we're watching um, the, the evolution of telcos, the previous conversations had always been evolution of telco into a new technology, into a new wireless technology, into data services, etc. But now the evolution is into entirely different industry verticals. 
So now you're seeing telcos that are competing with the banks. So to your point on the unbanked piece now, um, telcos aren't just providing their, their, their Samsung Pay and their iPay and their different pay solutions where you can store all your credit cards. They're actually becoming the banks. Um, some telcos are becoming uh, uh, services like Uber competing services. Um, you know, MTN out in Africa, very progressive, interesting company to watch where they're going um, as they're now one of the larger providers of, uh, of, of um, personal um, transportation services. They're one of the larger or largest providers of personal music services, uh, competing with the likes of the iTunes out there. Uh, so you're, you're seeing uh, telco operators become more entrenched in utilities and so on. So all these different verticals that they're moving into. So it's not just about evolving your network to do the latest, greatest thing. It's now evolving your entire business strategy to now start finding other ways to make money and, and, and use the leverage that you have in your, in your network, in your backbone, in your infrastructure to actually make you highly competitive the minute you show up in that vertical. So, you know, falling all the way back to Quest, way back in the uh, 80s and 90s, what made Quest so powerful and allowed them to buy U.S. West, arguably, some people would may disagree with this, but they had railway right-of-way through their ownership. So they could drop fiber all over the place on their railway right-of-ways and be able to start delivering long-distance services all over the place for a much cheaper, if not highly competitive cost for the other interconnect carriers that were in the United States. So now you see these telco operators, well, what's the biggest asset they have? Nine times out of 10, besides their people, it's their network. Well, within that network, what else can you do with it? What else can you leverage to make that uh, profitable for you? Um, so you know, everybody's been talking about the conversation of, um, well, you know, we, 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 have to, we have to start finding out ways to monetize data. Well, the, the, the advanced operators that are really taking this initiative by the horns are moving themselves into additional verticals where they know they can leverage that as opposed to trying to figure out how they're going to compete with the app developer. Now, now, now John, you, you know, obviously you've been around the world. And as I say, you've worked for these companies in these different locations. You look after the, the products for SubX. Can you give us a little bit of insight here in terms of is there some variation regionally? Is there some variation between geographical markets as to which products appeal most to certain markets? Is there a kind of more likely offering that they want in North America compared to Europe, compared to Asia, compared to Africa? Give, it, give me a feel here for where these are these markets diverging? Do they want different things? How does this relate to the products that are being sold to customers? You know... Uh yeah, there are some significant differences. So the United States, especially, and, and, and Canada as well, are very, very focused on network evolution and very, very focused on moving networks into software-defined and virtualized environments. They're all about, uh, you know, how do we go through and deliver services in high capacity, high quality, and extremely quickly, network-on-demand services, things like that. So a lot of our product focus around the network analytics area is pointed in that direction. Um, and we're seeing some of the biggest uptake and biggest opportunities. Now, if you change that conversation to go to Africa. And Africa, and, and to some extent, I would, I, would, I would put Latin America in at least part of this conversation. Africa is a, an interesting market in that um, risk and security and fraud are, are big hitters. 
where are you most vulnerable for broad hits? And it's going to be in the less developed markets. So uh, some places in the Caribbean, certainly in Africa, certainly in some countries in Central and Latin America, um, susceptible to fraud. Some of the smaller countries that exist out in Asia, perhaps, susceptible to fraud more than other larger entities in larger developed nations. You know, when you're a small entity, you do some things very, very well, and the best things you do are you wear a lot of hats, which means you have five different jobs. We're in a large organization. They've got departments. Mm -hmm. So as a result, can you be a world-renowned expert on everything happening in fraud on a daily basis? The answer is no. And, and same thing with security risk associated with mobile money and so on. Can you go through and protect your consumers, much less your enterprise, as effectively as somebody in a much larger, more developed organization? It's, it's a challenge. It is definitely a challenge. So in the developing markets, there's less emphasis on evolving networks into the new paradigms of virtualized and software-defined much more emphasis on controls around security, risk, fraud, etc. Move that off into markets such as some of the more developed Asian markets and certainly in the European markets, now you're seeing much more emphasis on mobility services. Where are the places we can go with mobility services for the operator or for the customers? And, and I'm not just talking about handsets and smartphones. Now we're talking about Wi-Fi enablement that's really starting to catch a hold and show up all across these continents that are, are delivering services such as your, your, your smart homes, smart health, smart cities, and so on. You're starting to see more and more of that um, IoT type of a realm start to take the hold in some of those geographies. And we're starting to see that now in the United States as well. So, so there are substantial differences. And I, I can't talk to Antarctica. They're, they're a continent in their own right. I have no idea what they're going to tell me. But <laughs> everybody else, they, they, there are substantial differences that are certainly taking place there. So, I mean, I think that's, that's fascinating. I mean, obviously, SubEx are market leaders across revenue assurance and fraud management. Would you say that there are smaller businesses in, say, North America or in India or wherever that are more focused on particular offerings and therefore competing with, uh, say, a, a limited proportion of your product suite because they're concentrating on the customers that are close to them rather than your global complete offering that you're offering for all telcos worldwide. Are there some companies that kind of stand out as being typically American or typically Indian or typically whichever region companies that, as I say, are not competing with you across the board, but they have a certain regional flavor and they're attacking a certain problem because that's the problem that they can see close to hand for the companies they're trying to sell to? Absolutely. And, and there, there are several companies that come to mind in that. There, there, there are companies out there that really take a, a subset problem that is a significant problem and they focus and they specialize on that problem. You know, the the Subex argument is very much uh, the ability to, to, to handle a broad spectrum of issues from one place. So you don't have to subdivide and work with 30 different vendors. Um, but there are some of these issues in the industry that's, that a company like Subex either isn't addressing or isn't addressing in the depth and detail that a company that focuses just on that one area is. So there are certainly companies that take on certain types of, of, of fraud and focus in on one or two types that they do very, very well. And they will compete against a company like Subex in that area because they're focused on the telcos. There's other companies out there that focus straight on consumers. Um, and, and those companies don't compete with Subex, but they deal with a security and a broad risk area 
they will eventually impact that operator, but have direct impact on the end customers and subscribers out there. Um, mobile money, there's a couple of really good uh, small companies out there that have come along to protect consumers and ultimately their banking or financial institution, whether that be a bank or an operator, that, uh, that, that have some very, very compelling technologies out there um, that are not in spaces that Subex plays in at all. So yeah, there there are there are quite a few players out there that do that. It really depends on what the operators are looking for and what's their biggest threat at the time, and where they focus their attention for for security and risk principles. Are they focused on protecting themselves? They want to protect their consumers, all of the above. Uh, we we you know we've certainly uh, seen a, a good rise in some of those smaller entities out there with some really compelling little products. Well, I mean, I was going to say one of the areas where there's a lot of interest these days, and it's a difficult one because it's not a like-for-like technology, but one of the areas that there's a lot of focus on is around digital identity, authenticating, ensuring that uh, payments are being made by the people who actually who, who should be making those payments and being able to exert some control over the amount of credit that, therefore, people are having in order to ensure that you're not allowing, you know, fraudsters to get away with lots of money because they're hijacking somebody else's identity. Is that an area which you would say is like a big growth area that you can expect over the coming years? Uh, it absolutely is. And, you know, there are some small companies out there like the Raptor Labs of the world and so on. Those guys are very, very powerful in those little areas. They're very consumer focused. And, you know, because the authentication conversation is, is, is an interesting conversation uh, because Today, when you go to Barcelona once a year for the Mobile World Congress, what you do is you see you know, tons and tons of offers in the biometrics area, and the fingerprints and the eye scans and the facial recognition and all of that stuff. Um, but there's simpler ways to conquer the problems. And uh, at the end of all of the security protocols and, and, and processes that are being built and put into place to protect the operator and or the consumer, if, if you can't make it easy to use and you can't make it something that is, is um, a, a relatively easy deployment and um, easy process to continue to manage, it's just not going to stick. And uh, the, the one thing that's always true within the fraud and security world is that the moment you come up with a fix for a problem, somebody's out there trying to find a way around it. So we see in the credit uh, environment, for instance, and the, the rising cashless purchasing. That's exactly what's happening with all the unbanked subscribers out in Africa, for instance. You know, for, for somebody to hijack your device that has your facility to do that, um, whether it be an auto, you know, an iPay system or whatever, for somebody's ability to clone that and, and basically rob somebody blind in minutes uh, is, is scary. There's been a big push to move everybody to chip cards. Well, I have personally been hijacked on my chip card um, several times. I've had four cards in the last 18 months sent to me by one bank because that card has been broken into, hacked, the chip has been uh, cloned, the identity has been lifted, the PIN number four has times. been acquired. Four, four times? times, John? What, what's happening at your bank? It seems like completely out of control. Four times? <laughs> What's you know, I think it's a more it's a more general problem because when I go to the grocery store, um, they often tell me don't use um, don't use the chip, you know, swipe it in the old way because they're obviously having problems. This is at a big store like Lowe's Home Improvement, so it's a widespread problem I think with the chips. 
Yeah, really, you know, they, the fact that they were able to, on this last attack, able to actually acquire and change my PIN number when I had never, ever used it once before. Uh, but it's encrypted and stored, and even with rotating CVV codes and everything else, it's, it's not foolproof. And there's all kinds of devices out there now, not just for skimming, but for you know, basically breaking in through cashless purchasing means or whatever to, to make these just the next thing that's going to be broken through. And, and so as a result, you know, these kind of risks out there that exist in the market are, are, are profound. And they, there's something that this is focused on, but like I said, there are smaller companies out there that are focused on protecting mobile subscribers and cashless purchasing that go directly after these things. I, I, you know, I mentioned the Raptor Labs. Those guys really have something out there that is pretty unique in that space. But they're, um, there's, there's going to always be the threat. And as long as subscribers don't have a practical means of protection that doesn't involve a whole bunch of, you know, I'm going to send you a code, and then you got to remember it, and then you got to type it in, or you got to do your thumbprint, but make sure you get the right thumb, and, and you got to do an eye scan, but boy, my gosh, make sure you're not wearing your contact or what. You know, all things that can go wrong with that. Um, there's just too many, too many um, breaks in the security there, and there's 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 ways to fix that. There really are. So you, you mentioned Raptor Labs there. I'm, I don't think Raptor Labs has been going for that many years, but bringing this back in terms of the context of your career, again, there was investment in businesses in North America. Then there was investment in businesses in Europe. Then we saw investment in businesses in India. You know, the, These things kind of follow a migration path. Raptor Labs is in America. Do we see this as being the time for another, a new surge of investment? in the kinds of security, anti-fraud, risk management, credit risk management. Is this the time now for more investment in North America? Or is it a global fight now for like that market share? How do you see it panning out, John? Um, this, this, is, this is a global fight. You know, people's lifestyles have become digital. And as they become more and more completely digital, um, then everything they do is going to move through a handset. It's going to move through the Wi-Fi in their home. It's going to move through their 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 television set. It, it's everything they do isn't going to be necessarily a case of of as, as damage. You want to Lowe's and either swiping or inserting a card. It's going to be walking up and proximity of your handset to that point of sale will automatically tell Lowe's who you are and what credit credit instrument do they want to use because they have your handset. Now imagine somebody's cloned that handset and they walked up to that same register with a thousand dollars worth of whatever they bought. And the handset puts off a signal that is recognized. If that consumer isn't alerted that that's happening, then that cloned handset has just now cost them a thousand dollars and they didn't even know it. So, so as we become more and more digital, this is a worldwide problem. How many people are paying with their handsets now by walking up and just doing a proximity near field communication scan? You know, that, that will take off, that will continue as we move to simplifying how people, how consumers spend money um, and where that money comes from. Um, as we continue to digitalize and simplify that, there will be a wave of investment in these areas. Yeah, uh, you know, I think certainly another factor here is the growth of this whole VoIP movement. I mean, you know, you know, you got companies like Viber, WhatsApp, and then a ton of... Um, you know, in America, UMA and, um, you know, Vonage, these types of VoIP companies, but they're more than VoIP. They offer PBX services. They offer SMS. 
Um, they can link to your mobile phone, you know, and manage your mobile phone, much like uh, Google, Vo Google Voice would manage at a very simplistic level. Um, I just spoke to a company called Talinta, and Talinta is, hosts a soft switch in the cloud, but with that, um, with that hosted solution, they offer a complete business solution that costs an entrepreneur or a comms company $400 a month to run a, ba a basic business, a telecom business globally. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so we've switched to the point where the systems to do billing and all of the things that Revenue Assurance traditionally checked are being available at a, at a very, very low price, enabling a lot of resellers to come into the marketplace. And so that it becomes, once again, a management problem of the fraud and the identity management becomes so critical because it's not so much the systems are screwing up. It's like, how do we, you know, make sure that there's not criminals out there that are, you know, taking, raking us over the coals. Um, I spoke to Colin Yates last, uh, last night from New Zealand, of course, you know, an international uh, revenue assurance fraud expert. And, you know, he talks about a, a company that um, – lost $2.3 million on a single, you know, week's hit in fraud, you know, and, um, you know, these are astounding numbers. But so it really is the the holes in the system, just like revenue assurance is always looking for the holes and the errors in the system. But increasingly, I think the fraud and security is going to become a very big aspect of that and has got to be monitored. So, but, but, so where do companies who wish to fill this gap, how do they get competitive advantage, John? Is it through having superior patents, superior technology? Is it about a better understanding of their customers? Is it about being in the right place at the right time, John? You know, what, where's, where does competitive advantage come, come from in this highly complicated and, as you've said, global marketplace? Well, and, and, you know, the competitive advantage is going to come, first of all, from, uh, well, from several different sources. Number one, do you have something that's, that's, that's compelling? Number two, are you funded well enough to, to actually be able to uh, get your message out there? And then number three, and, and, and this is one that that's, leans back to what you were just saying, um, right place, right time. You know, who are going to be the cutting edge uh, entities that are going to take on some of these new things? And, and give them a try and find out what kind of services they have because that becomes the competitive advantage for the customer that they're serving. So, you know, take a case of the, the cashless purchasing security protection, for instance, when you're protecting the consumer. The bank and or telco that actually implements one of these things from a Raptor Labs or whomever um, that actually can offer that to their, to their customers, especially in the face of their customers being hit with, you know, I, I think the credit theft rate right now runs a new victim every 20 seconds worldwide um, and, and that that's um, that's that's a pretty interesting number and um, so now all of a sudden you're dealing with with uh, you know operators that are vying to show who's the better secured for their customers so that their customers aren't being inconvenienced and or a threat of losing money you know I would be scared to death if I'm a mobile money operator who is actually also the bank and, and knowing full well that if my customers are using me as that bank and I've got, you know, however much money in, in, in my, my RAND or whatever my currency is out there, if I don't have some kind of protection mechanism out there to ensure that that customer is not going to get cleaned out one day and they're going to spend the next basically several days 
arguing with our customer service on when they're going to get their money back, what kind of protections are going to be in place, who's responsible for this, that whole myriad of problems. Uh, that becomes, you know, when they can say we stand up protection that is um, pretty cutting edge and, and really not rivaled right now, all of a sudden they have the ability to go start getting market share. And, you know, that's, if, if I'm the operator today, uh, I'm, I'm really wanting to pay close attention to the threats that are affecting my customer base, not just the ones that financially impact me, but the ones that financially impact them even if I'm insulated, because ultimately I'm not insulated. If they get threatened by something that I wasn't able to provide, guess what? They're not going to be my customer anymore. So, you know, those 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 kinds of things are 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 top of mind when it comes to how does an operator position itself to gain that market share? Because what are, what are we trying to do these days? We're not trying to get new customers. We're trying to get somebody else's customers. There aren't any new customers left out there of any consequence to go after. Everybody's got a handset. Everybody's got services. So, you know, how do we ensure that, that we are grabbing the lion's share of that market? And that's where some of these protection services, um, the security services for their customers are key. And I think something that would be very, very uh, differentiating to them going forward. I, I think you're absolutely right there with the point that you make, John. And it's one that I feel very strongly about that our old ways of, viewing and measuring the impact of fraud no longer work. Uh, yes, there is a bottom line. Yes, we want the company to have the, the highest profit profitable, have it highest profit possible. And that means, of course, you're interested in frauds that affect your bottom line and you need to protect yourself against them. But if you look at shareholder value, if you look at shocks to the system and what causes a big drop in share, in share prices, it's quite often major frauds, major scandals that's affecting your customers. Not affecting you directly, but it's affecting your customers. And people are holding you responsible for not having done a good enough job in protecting them. So I think, yes, absolutely, our measures are out of date. Fraud departments now should be measuring the amount of fraud that is occurring to them and to the customers. They should be based, their, their measures of success should be based on how much they're preventing fraud to the company and to the customers as well. And I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think there is certainly room for expansion investment in more of these products and services that help to defend the customer. And in the end, that will lead to customer loyalty as well as higher share value because you won't get these major shocks to the system as a result of some scandal, as a result of some hacking attack, as a result of people finding that their money is disappearing out of their e-wallet or their m-wallet and they don't know where it's gone and as a result they lose confidence in using that technology and they their friends don't use that technology and their neighbors and their work colleagues don't use that technology because of the bad news scandals i think like that's that's such a profound point who's leading the way with that though john which 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 companies in your experience are best now at taking on board this more extended view of how you protect the business and how you protect its customers. Who in your mind stands out as being a telco that you think we should be emulating more? Well, as far as protecting customers, to be perfectly honest, I, I'm, I'm not seeing that as much of a priority yet, but I'm starting to see it show up on dockets of conversation. So 
Uh, you know, some of those operators that are in those developing markets, I certainly you know, see a lot of um, you know, risk analysis and risk aversion tactics coming into play in the, at least the thought processes of some of the larger carriers in Africa, like MTN, for instance. Yeah. Now, John, we've been talking for a good while here. I want to bring it back a little bit more to you, not just the market. As I say, you've, you, you're still based in the United States of America, but you've worked for companies around the world, and we've seen this progression in who you've worked for. Uh, can you give us a few thoughts and reflections upon culture and the different kinds of people you've worked for? And, you know, what, what in your mind has been culturally, you know, what leads to success in different cultures in this industry? Wow. Yeah, there's... Because <laughs> you're yeah, an American and you work for an Indian company now. You know, we know that there's different cultures around the world. You deal with telcos around the world. So uh, I always like to give this. It's a tough question, John, but it's worth, it's worth asking the question because a guy like you, you've been around the block. You know a thing or two about what makes human beings tick, as well as technology. You know, so tell it, tell us what is it? What is the secret to like a productive team in this area? Well, a productive team knows their customers, and there there is no such thing in this business as a one size fits all, and that should never be taken as an assumption or a generalization that that's the case. Uh, far too often, we see cases where. Uh, distance from the customer can lead to a lot of not great outcomes and that's not speaking just from a subex perspective but from our our competitors in the space vendors in space in general uh, you know i've watched billing companies that basically cr a customer to death into the tune of millions or tens of millions of dollars in a year and those companies have lost touch of um, their customer what's important to them and what drives their business and as a result that customer has extracted them from the business and replaced them. Um, we all face those threats if we don't understand who our customers are. And that means, you know, when, when you've got, you know, a thousand people in, your, people in your organization, you want to go do some work for a customer, that you just go find the next people on the bench and sick them to the job. No, you, you need to have some more personal connection to your customer because their business is changing. It's changing every day. If you're not plugged into the changes that they're taking on, um, and you don't understand them, they will sense it, and they will sense it immediately. And as a result, you will be minimized as far as your input and your importance in that customer's eyes. So, you know, culturally, I think it's very, very important for um, for companies to be uh, wary of centralization and wary of, of overgeneralizing and trying to rubber stamp things across the operators or any business in general because they're just not the same. Uh, the things that make an operator in Africa tick are completely different than the things that make an operator in Argentina tick. I guarantee you they don't match anything of what a tier three operator in North Carolina is. So, you know, those, those are entirely different circumstances. And when you try and show up with the same bag of tricks, the same sales pitch, the same messaging, the same support practices doesn't work, and, and and so culturally, I think it's you know. But what I've seen over the years is I've seen cases where it hasn't worked well and cases where it has worked well. In past lives before telecom, I worked in emergency services, and I watched our company grow from 250 people to 25,000 people. And after I left, um, within a few years, they shrunk all the way back down to about 10,000. And the reason they did is because they started losing customers. 
all over the country. And they did because they were no longer plugged in with what the customer needed, what drove them, what yeah. was important. Now, John, we're coming near to the, the time to say goodbye to you. I'm going to like ask you one last super difficult question to see if we can just get a little bit more out of that vast experience and share it with the listeners here. And the final question I have for you, John, is you've been doing this for quite a while. As a, a, You claim to be there when Revenue Assurance started and you've been around the world. If somebody's young, perhaps starting to enter this field for the first time, a bit of a noob, you know, doesn't really know their way around, doesn't, hasn't seen like the lay of the land. What's the one piece of advice you'd give to them to have a successful career in this field? Hmm. <laughs> Keep your head down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't put your head up above the cubicle for fear of, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the one thing that has always stood out throughout my career um, that is that has led to success for me uh, has, has really been uh, an attention to the right detail at the right time. And uh, that, that conversation has a lot of different facets. It can be a conversation about pick your battles. It can be a conversation of, of uh, understanding where the low-hanging fruit is versus where, where it's not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different facets to, to that statement, but it's paying attention to the right details at the right time and, and having enough experience over time to understand what those are. Um, this, this business is, um, you know, I, I, won't, I won't profess to say it's, it's more difficult or, or simpler than any other industry business out there of, of similar stature, but, you know, operators... Um, today need somebody who will understand them and be able to coach and offer advice that is pertinent to their particular situation. Um, if you're new in the business, listen. And as you gain experience and you have listened, then you can start to formulate opinions that will be meaningful and eventually valuable. And that would be my, my, my recommendation to anybody that would be wanting to get into the business is, uh, on top of Dan's comment on keeping your head down, uh, while it's down, listen, be a sponge, absorb, and begin to develop good thought processes around where value can be brought in. And from there, you should see success. Well, thank you very much, John, for your wisdom, and in particular for that uh, wonderful piece of advice there that people should listen. Ideal piece of advice for a podcast that really uh, couldn't have got any better if you said look at things then that would have been terrible advice for a podcast John so I appreciate uh, that in particular thank you for your time today it's been a real pleasure talking to you I don't know why we didn't ever have you as a guest before I do hope we'll have you as a guest in future John thank you I certainly enjoyed it thank you very much so that was a fascinating interview with John there, Dan. I think the the theme that I would pick up upon there, I mean, there were so many topics that we covered that it's impossible to focus on all of them. But uh, one of the things that was very big there in the conversation with John is that in terms of fraud, in terms of fighting fraud, in terms of fighting criminals, we need to broaden our view from just focusing on the bottom line for the telco to increasingly concentrate on protecting our customers and that means we must 
know who our customers are, we can verify their identity, we can ensure the right people are engaging in these increasingly valuable financial transactions. Uh, in your experience as a researcher, do you see more money being invested in this field go, going forward into the future? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly um, things like biometrics, um, you know, and point of sale types of systems that, um, you know, live in the call center or the retail store. And they've, they've been a big investment point over the last few years, but I don't think that they've made any progress, which is kind of disappointing. Um, so certainly this need for simpler systems, something that will directly and simply um, you know, be able to verify uh, someone's identity. We're looking for that type of solution. And I would, I would also emphasize another thing that uh, John kind of brought up and is becoming increasingly important. Just because um, a lot of retail systems are, uh, are becoming simple and uh, one flat rate for everything you use, in the background there may be a lot of interconnect and partner management activities that revenue assurance people really need to worry about. And so that, that was another aspect of what he talked about, I took a keen interest in. Indeed. Well, there's a lot we can unpack there, but sadly we're out of time today. You've been listening to episode 28 of the Comms Risk podcast, the only podcast dedicated to practitioners of risk management and business assurance for communications providers. Visit commsrisk.com to download this podcast and all the previous episodes too. Or you can find ComsRisk on the iTunes store, where you can also subscribe to this podcast for free, so you'll never miss a future episode. And don't forget to visit ComsRisk.com for plenty of news and opinion about communications risk and assurance. We bring you the stories that you simply can't find anywhere else. Many thanks to John Brooks for being today's guest, and of course, to my co-host, Dan Baker. I'm Eric Priest-Combs. Thanks for listening.